Our theme during Advent this year is Home for Christmas. Uh, we had uh, Dan Smith's sermon in the first week of Advent about the Exodus, which is the paradigm for our lives as wanderers in the world waiting to arrive in our true home. Last week we looked at Hebrews 11 that talked about Christians as being aliens and strangers in the world and those looking for a better country rather than being attached to place or finding our home here. This week we're going to talk about the flight to Egypt. That is when the Holy Family, uh, under threat of Herod's political persecution, uh, took the harrowing, the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, where they fled because of a dream that Joseph received as refugees to Egypt. Middle Eastern refugees fleeing political violence is not a unfamiliar category for us at all, and it's strange and informative to think of the Holy Family as being in that situation. Never heard a lot of great sermons on the flight to Egypt. I've seen more great pictures painted about the flight to Egypt than I've seen, than I've heard good sermons about it. Uh, it really seems to provoke the imagination of the artists. A famous painting is one by Gustave Doré, who uh, painted the picture of Mary and Joseph and the baby on a donkey. Um, it has in the picture Joseph with a his hood drawn up over his head. He's on foot while Mary and the Christ child are on a donkey, and he's leading them in dusk, uh, and he's looking back over his shoulder as they go, looking back towards uh Bethlehem and where they'd come from. You see in his eyes uh, a lot of fear um, and a lot of uncertainty and longing and wondering if this is the last time he'll see his homeland. Um, he's in the desert with his family all alone, afraid of robbers, afraid of cops too, because it's the police that he's running from uh, with Herod's orders. Another painting is Merson's uh, Repose on the Flight to Egypt, which uh, you may have seen uh, more often. It's more popular, I think, but it has a picture of Joseph lying on the ground, again with his, with his hood kind of covering his head, sleeping, uh, donkey nearby with its pack down beside it, uh, finding a sprig of grass here and there that it can eat. And then a picture... Uh, to the side of Mary holding the Christ child and resting uh, in the arms or the crook of a sphinx's arm with uh, the light shining down on them. It seems strange to think of pyramids and sphinxes as part of Jesus' life and experience, but that's what we're told has actually happened. It's a very interesting situation. I mean, what are you supposed to say about the flight to Egypt? Uh, what is that supposed to mean to us? Um, it sounds, at first reading, a little bit like something you would read in the Apocrypha, some uh, books that are not actually Scripture but written about early days of Jesus' life. You get kind of fantastical stories in there. This sounds a little bit like one of those. And the way it's described in Matthew, in the passage we're going to read, describes it as a fulfillment of what was said in 
the prophet Hosea about God calling his son out of Egypt. But if that were the point of it, it would seem like too kind of neat and, and uh, superstitious almost a way of checking off prediction from the Old Testament in the life of Jesus, having come out of Egypt as God's son. What's really going on here is a window for us into the whole reason that Jesus came to earth and what his mission on earth was going to be. And as we look at that, we'll find that it's also shaping for our thinking about how we uh, think about and welcome refugees in our lives. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to you as we consider your word. Uh, we pray that you would let your son, Jesus Christ, loom large in our eyes uh, through what we think about and read here. And we pray in Jesus' name. This is Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, Out of Egypt I called my son. And this is the word of the Lord. It seems like we hear a little bit less about refugees in the world than we did, say, five years ago, uh, when the huge crisis of Syrian refugees was crushing uh, all of the southern European Mediterranean borders, uh, the Greek islands being overwhelmed by refugees, uh, the stories of tragedy that you would hear coming out of Syria at that time, uh, you remember uh, Alon Kurdi, the three-year-old boy who drowned, whose picture was uh, made world famous worldwide as this poignant description of the horrors of the refugee crisis. Back then, five years ago, there were about 59 million refugees in the world, people who have had to leave their homes because of the threat of violence, either politically or religiously. 59 million five years ago. It's 80 million now. We don't talk about it as much or see it as much on the news, but the problem has worsened rather than gotten better. Um, the country of Lebanon has 25% of the people living in their borders are Syrian refugees. 25% of their population are Syrian refugees who've had to flee their homeland. Egypt has welcomed about a quarter of a million of uh, the Syrian refugees to go on top of the two and a half million African refugees that have found shelter in Egypt, the country that first sheltered the Holy Family. Um, Alan Kurdi was around three years old when he died just a few months older than the Christ child when he entered Egypt as a refugee himself. Um, the refugee crisis 
shines a light of shame on the world, really a light of shame on the countries that have made life impossible for people to live there. Shame on the profiteers who have seen a way to use and abuse and profit from people in their distress as refugees. Shame as well on the nations of the world and their responses to the crisis amongst their fellow human beings. Um, it's only a heartbreaking situation. There is light shed on uh, the beauty of Jesus in the midst of this crisis, though, uh, because you see Jesus' people identifying with refugees and moving out uh, at great expense and great risk and great cost to try to help and relieve the plight of those who have been uh, run away from their homes. Um, Jesus' people, uh, in many places, have adopted Jesus' way of life with regard to refugees. That is, they've taken the my life for yours approach to life that Jesus modeled for us. My life for yours. And have extended that kind of love and care for refugees. I saw a picture of a crash in a refugee camp. And behind it, painted on a tent, was the, were the words, and these were from uh, Christians from Nineveh, of all places. Imagine how Jonah must think about uh, Christians from Nineveh today. But on the tent, they had painted Jesus as the light of the world living in those horrible conditions. Jesus is the light of the world. Another tent, I don't know where this one was. The other one was in northern Iraq. Um, but someone in a refugee camp, and if you've seen the pictures of refugee camps, it's just uh, a way no one would ever wish to live. Um, but on one of the tents it said, home is where Jesus is. Home is where Jesus is. And that's the theme of our Advent uh, series this Christmas. Home is where Jesus is. But I don't know who can feel that as deeply as someone who is living the life of a refugee can feel it. Home is where Jesus is. So I want us to think about this experience that the Holy Family had. Think about what it means and what it means for us. But, boy, a story about undocumented Middle Eastern political uh, asylum seekers and refugees with a two-year-old-ish child is something we still know about, something we can feel the pain of. I feel the pain for Joseph uh, peculiarly as the father in this situation. Joseph gets another dream. Fantastic. Just what I wanted, another dream. If I were Joseph and being who I am, I don't want any dreams. I don't understand what dreams are. I don't know how you know if a dream is from God. But Joseph had already had one dream that said it's okay to marry Mary, if you remember. That the story she's telling you, which is completely impossible, is actually true about how she comes to be pregnant. And so he gets this dream that totally turns his life upside down. Uh, he believes Mary when no one else does. And goes and marries her. And he's... He seems to be a normal 
person. He's trying to be a good man, trying to have faith. He's a carpenter. He's not a fanatic. And yet he's having dreams. Uh, one was bad enough. Now he gets another dream. You know, I bet if I were Joseph, I'd be looking for a prosperity church where they would tell me that if you put your trust in Jesus, then everything's going to go great in your life. Uh, because when Joseph embraced Jesus Christ, everything in his life went to shreds. I, it did not make his life better. It made his life worse. And now it's getting even worse. Right? He's marginalized socially already because of Mary and everybody talking the way that they talk. And they still talk about Mary. But he embraces that, goes along with it. But now here's his life. He's a simple carpenter, minding his own business. And now he's a guy who has dreams from God. And he's married this woman, and his reputation is weird in Nazareth and Bethlehem from now on. And now he's friends with weird Eastern astrologers who come and visit him. Right? And he listens to what they say and takes it seriously. Crazy astrologers from Iraq. And that's his life now. Right? And now he gets another dream that says your life is going to unravel even further. You're going to be a political refugee now. You're going to be a refugee, an asylum seeker, an expat. You're going to go somewhere where you don't have a job. You're going to pack a donkey tonight with whatever you need for the trip, which is 75 miles to the border, and then presumably another 500 after that, on one donkey with a baby and a wife. You're not going to have any stuff. Maybe this is why the, the uh, strange and elaborate gifts were given by the Magi, the golden myrrh and the frankincense. Maybe these were uh, liquid enough, portable enough, for them to be able to take... Uh, them along on the flight to Egypt so they would have something. But they're going to a place where they don't speak the language like all refugees do. A place where they don't have any social standing anymore. Their reputation, uh, no one knows or cares about their reputation. Just like refugees today, you may have been a doctor or a teacher or a physicist in the country uh, that you fled. But here, you have a broom and you sweep or something if you can even get that job. Because nobody cares anymore that you were a carpenter in Nazareth. I'm sure Joseph had heard in the synagogue read the Leviticus 19 passage along with others that say, because you were slaves in Egypt, now when strangers and refugees come to your country, you're to welcome them. You are to love them like yourself because I am Yahweh your God. But man, those passages must sound very different to Joseph now that he is a refugee. Just like the passages about visiting prisoners in prison would read differently to you if you were in prison. Now Joseph reads the refugee passages as a refugee. It's a panic trip to, you know, when you travel, if you're you know, a man, you have all these sort of... Uh, unwritten rules in the back of your head about how you're responsible for everyone being safe and all the logistics of the trip being managed and you know you sort of put on that um, leader of the enterprise hat sometimes or at least I do and here's Joseph no time to plan no map 
No time to pack, really. They have to go that night. Worrying about robbers. Worrying even more about the cops, because that's who has already explicitly threatened the life of his son. Scared of the Egyptians, too. Who knows where he's going to go? Who knows who he's going to find? How he's going to live? How he'll be welcomed? There's supposed to have been like a million uh, expat Jews in Egypt at this time, which is amazing. But does Joseph know them? Does he have contact with them? He certainly wasn't planning for months in advance uh, a trip to Egypt, uh, plan to immigrate. Does he know any? Who knows if he knows any of them? So when you see Dory's picture of Joseph looking backwards, you have to wonder, is he looking back thinking, is this the last time I'm ever going to see my home? Am I, am I going for good? Or is this temporary? He's called to trust God without being given very much information at all. Like, how long are you going to be in Egypt? Where are you going to be in Egypt? He doesn't even get the little explanation we get, the Hosea 11 quotation, out of Egypt have I called my son. I don't know if that would have explained much to him even if he had heard that. It's pretty cryptic even for us. But he's finding out what everybody finds out when they make a connection with Jesus Christ, which is that Jesus is a wildly disruptive influence in your life. Wildly disruptive influence in your life. Joseph doesn't have his life as he knew it anymore. And he's not going to get it back. Which is true of any of us who come into relationship with Jesus Christ. He's not leaving us where we are and how we are. Um, Joseph has been conscripted into Jesus' my life for yours plan. My life for yours. He's now giving up everything precious in him in his life for the sake of this baby who's biologically speaking not even his baby. A lot of you know firsthand what it means to have a my life for yours attitude towards someone who's not even biologically yours. Uh, those of you who have adopted, who, are, who, are, who will adopt, uh, those of you welcoming foster children, know what it means to live this Jesus life of my life for yours with regard to somebody else. That's Joseph's life now. What about Mary? What does this seem like for her? She's, I mean, she's got normal mama fears for her baby, for her two-year-old. You know, if mamas weren't afraid for what could happen to their two-year-olds, no two-year-olds would ever grow up to adulthood. But she also feels this huge duty and responsibility because this is the holy child. You know, this is the one, the Messiah, she's been told. And so she feels doubly anxious to care for this child. And she's got a lot to be afraid of. She doesn't have to just make up things to worry about. I mean, she's in the desert with her husband and her baby. Um, I can't imagine anyone traveling as a nuclear family alone through the deserts. You would expect, surely, anyone you met would do you harm. Uh, robbers had to be terrified of these things, but also at the same time running from the authorities, running from the police who have threatened to kill your baby and wondering, is that really real? Could that be true? I mean, this is a dream. We don't know. Uh, the 
the Magi said something, but we don't understand all that. And she's got all these things to think about as she runs. A migrant mother worried about the safety of her child politically. No money. Maybe they have the gifts. Doesn't say. No facility in the language. Nobody that she knows who can help with the baby. Nobody she knows that can help if the baby gets sick. Nobody can be a babysitter. Who knows what she's facing in Egypt? Her child will probably be despised in Egypt as a foreigner, as a refugee. That's the only way they'll be able to see him or think of him. And she'll have no rights in her new home. Uh, she'll be completely dependent on how merciful the people she's around happen to be. That's all she's got. Just like refugee moms everywhere. But like refugee moms everywhere, Mary is willing uh, to do whatever it takes, whatever risk, whatever sacrifice so that her child can have not just a better life, but a life at all. She's trying to keep her child alive. And so she packs. <laughs> Fast. Just what you can get on one donkey. You'd think if you got even, you know, a pittance of the water or food that you needed, it would overload the donkey already. How do you pack for a trip like this with a baby? Um, food, water... You take the frankincense and myrrh, who knows? She does know that God is in this, but it's so strange. It's so strange that this is what he would ask her to do. If I was Mary, I'd be thinking, wasn't, wasn't me having the baby enough? Like, haven't I been through enough? Haven't I done enough already? Uh, how now are you asking me to go be a refugee? And we wonder, too, why is this necessary? This seems extraneous, like a detail that, um, that shouldn't matter in the story of Jesus and his birth and his early days. We get this explanation that doesn't explain that much to us at first. He says, this was done to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, out of Egypt have I called my son. But that wasn't a prediction that the Messiah would immigrate to Egypt as a refugee and then come back. No, Hosea didn't say anything like that. He was describing the whole history of Israel when he said, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Uh, describing his rescue through Moses, through the exodus of Israel. That's what Hosea 11 talks about. Why does that apply to Jesus here? Yeah. And why couldn't they have just hidden somewhere else in Israel? I mean, Herod's order was just for uh, Galilee, right? It was, it was for a small area for uh, the threat to the children, they could have gone somewhere else in Israel where it would have been a lot more controllable and safer. Why did they have to go to Egypt? It's certainly not the idea that you're uh, ticking a Nostradamus box of prediction about something in the Old Testament that happened in the life of Jesus. There are some things like that, but most of the Old Testament anticipation of the Messiah isn't Nostradamus-type predictions. It's a whole story that's leading up to Jesus Christ. And what you have in the out of Egypt have I called my son passage is this idea that the Messiah is going to come and be and do what Israel was always supposed to be and do, but never was and never did. Israel was supposed to be God's uh, chosen nation through which the whole world would be drawn to faith in Yahweh, the one true God, and reconciled to him. Uh, but Israel became... Uh, 
stiff-necked towards God himself, and completely uninterested in his mission in the world. And they became xenophobic and inwardly focused and quit caring if they ever cared about the nations around them. So Jesus comes, and he's now going to be the true Israel. He's going to be what Israel was always supposed to be, God's loved son, his uh, faithful son that, that loves and obeys him, but also his instrument in the world. So Jesus comes as the true Israel to be God's son and to extend God's mission of reconciliation to the whole world. Uh, so he's come to rescue the whole world and bring them back into relationship with their creator to show them mercy. And that was what Jesus came to be and do. And so uh, you see this in Jesus' life in a couple of ways. Um, one, you see the uh, Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah, you read in uh, Mark chapter 9, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and talk with him. And Peter, James, and John are there, and they're all terrified of this whole vision. They fall down and with their faces on the ground. But Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus, it says, about his coming exodus. His coming exodus. Because Jesus is going to lead the true exodus of God's people out of their slavery, not to Egypt, but out of their slavery to sin. And he's going to bring them home to the promised land, not Palestine, but the new creation, the new Jerusalem that Jesus is preparing for us now. So, uh, but in Jesus' exodus, you don't have all these plagues that come on the Egyptians. Instead, all of the plagues come on Jesus Christ as he suffers on the cross. And you don't have the death of the firstborn in Egypt. You have the death of the firstborn of God, his only begotten son, on the cross to effect our rescue and our freedom. The point of out of Egypt have I called my son then is that Jesus is a greater Moses and he is achieving a greater exodus. And that's what he has come to do. And it's pictured in his flight to Egypt. That's what the flight to Egypt means and why it matters is Jesus is the true Israel recapitulating their history but doing it faithfully now. So that this is not a passage then that's fundamentally about what our attitude towards refugees ought to be. Except that it is a passage about what our attitude towards refugees ought to be. In Leviticus 19, as you saw on the slide at the beginning of the video, the Israelites, because they were slaves in Egypt and had been rescued, were obligated to love the stranger and refugee when they were present in their country because of the experience they themselves had had in Egypt and because God is Yahweh, he says. You shall love them as yourself and welcome them because you were refugees and were rescued. And then, to make it more explicit, in Matthew 25, when Jesus is talking about uh, the final judgment day and talking about what characterizes his people, he says, uh, when I was hungry, you gave me food. And when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And when I was a refugee, you welcomed me. And then he said, inasmuch as you do this to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. 
you do it to me. To welcome refugees is to welcome Jesus, is what he says. Because he was a refugee, we welcome refugees. That's the logic of the New Testament. Because he became homeless to bring us home, we welcome those who are homeless and who are strangers and refugees. This is a Christian logic. Do you feel any reluctance about that? Because I do. I think there's a lot of reasonable reluctance to think uh, in more worried terms about refugees and what welcoming them might mean. I mean, everybody feels pity for refugees, people who have had to leave their homes, at least some pity for them. Um, but I don't know how prudent it is or how safe it is to welcome strangers, stranger danger, right? How prudent is it to welcome refugees? I mean, if you're the U.S., you can vet out refugees coming from Syria a lot better than if you're on the island of Lesbos and their people are on the shore in their dinghies and rafts, but still you don't know for sure who people are. Even with the elaborate vetting process that we use in the U.S., you don't know, and if you deal with people straight on our border, you know uh, less there and you have less time and buffer to do the vetting. So is that safe? Is that safe? No. Um, don't you think our safety should be our first priority when we think about questions like this? Our safety should be our first priority? I mean, I feel sorry for you, but ultimately, you know, this is my life. And my attitude towards that very reasonably is, you know, your life for mine. I mean, I've got to do for me and mine. And if I've got something left over and it doesn't, cost me anything, really, then I might like to help you. Uh, but ultimately, I've got to, I've got to look out for myself. I've got to look out for my family. Um, I have to be safe. I have to be prudent. Does that make any sense? sure does to me. seems like a smart, normal, reasonable way to live. But if you want to live in that smart and reasonable and totally understandable way, I have advice for you. And that advice is, under no circumstances should you welcome this refugee, the Christ child, into your life. Do not welcome him because he will turn your life upside down. It won't be safe at all. If this Middle Eastern political refugee finds place in your life and in your heart, He's going to bring trouble that's wildly disruptive into your life. Because this refugee can be vetted out. And we know for sure that he is politically subversive. He's come to undermine the kings of the earth. To be the king over the kings of the earth. To be the lord over the lords of the earth. All of the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He is politically subversive. He hates our way of life. You can count on it. So don't welcome him. He doesn't care about your safety. He doesn't care about your children's safety. When you are engaged in his mission in the world, which happens when you come in a relationship with him, 
You become expendable for the sake of his kingdom, and your children become expendable for the sake of his kingdom. Ask the Coptic Christians in the nation that welcomed the Holy Family as refugees, and now his followers see their children martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. A relationship with Jesus does not make your children more safe. Um, it puts them at great risk because Jesus wants them to seek his kingdom above everything else, including their safety and including their lives. So if you want to be prudent and you want to be safe and you want to be careful and you want to do for you and yours before you do for the stranger and the refugee, then don't welcome this refugee because he'll turn all that on its head. He makes you welcome other people. And changes the orientation of your life to be a my life for yours calculation, which is totally crazy. My life for yours. But he also actually turns you into a refugee. If you get in contact with him, he makes you a refugee. Someone who is an alien and a stranger, which is the New Testament word for refugee. Alien and stranger on the earth where you don't have a home here. And you're never going to be at home until you're face-to-face -face at home with him. So that your home isn't your castle anymore. Your home is fodder to be used for his kingdom and his mission on the earth. All right? It's not the place of refuge for you uh, to use selfishly anymore. If you have a peaceful Christmas, you know that it's just the eye of the storm that you're going to be called to kick back against the darkness and push back against the curse again in 2021 as much as you've had to in 2020 because we're not home yet. Even with the vaccine, we're not home yet. We're aliens and strangers on the earth. Never home until we're home with him. I was doing a pretty good job, I think maybe like Joseph, of minding my own business and not worrying about refugee things I saw in the news that were far from me. But I backed into all of this by marrying Julie. And um, that's another thing I would recommend not doing if you want to live a your life for mine life. Julie loves refugees. Uh, she worked in a refugee resettlement agency in Atlanta and made my life wild and crazy at times. Our, our dining room table was just bizarre. It was uh, hard to believe in exurban Atlanta, which is uh, meant to be the most homogeneous place in the world, that our dining room table looked like it did so many nights. Um, crazy experiences, people from all over the place with stories that curl your uh, fingernails. And um, one that wasn't so harrowing, although their story had been harrowing, was a Sudanese man um, who was Muslim, his wife was a Christian, and they were over at our house, and he was telling me that he had two preachers that he liked in America. One was Joel Osteen, and the other was me. And uh, somehow Julie thought that was really funny that I got lumped in that group. But our daughter, while she was in high school, went down and spent the summer living in an apartment in the refugee resettlement complex. Our missions agency for our denomination, when they want to see if people are tough enough 
to do uh, countercultural missions in really dangerous places, they make them go for a week or two to this apartment complex in Clarkston, Georgia. My little high school daughter went down there and spent the whole summer living there because she was raised by Julie Garland and she imbibed this idea that when you know Jesus, your life is my life or yours. And I imbibed that enough to say, okay, I guess you can go, right? Um, but that's the kind of craziness that comes into your life. Last Christmas Eve, we sat at our dining room table with uh, about five, I think it was five Afghani women who were here resettled as refugees. Um, and Ali and Elias Hazarati were here with us who speak Turkish and Farsi. And so they were able to communicate. Julie and I sat on the ends of the table and served the food and didn't understand a word that was said all night. Um, they were going to town talking and it was a crazy Christmas Eve, but when the flight to Egypt is part of the Christmas story, it's not such a crazy Christmas Eve. I went over and played Jingle with uh, the little you know, four-year-old girl because she had the best English in the room and that's the place I felt most comfortable. But Jesus became a refugee for us. We're supposed to welcome refugees. Sounds like we're gonna ramp back up our program governmentally for welcoming refugees in the coming years, and we'll need to be prepared for that. There are already a lot of refugees here. The Tucson Rescue um, Refugee Ministry has mentioned needs to me that I can pass along, especially for some men to be mentors in their program. But we have to think, what is our response going to be generally uh, to people who are aliens and strangers coming into our city? How are we going to respond to them? Tom Petty wasn't wrong. You don't have to live like a refugee. But if you're going to welcome Jesus, the holy refugee to Egypt, then he's going to turn your life inside out and you're going to welcome refugees. He's going to give you a my life for yours attitude and experience because you're going to know that you're never home until you're home with Jesus Christ face to face. Now let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us your eyes and your heart uh, for the people around us. We are amazed and thrilled by what Jesus Christ has come and done for us and what he endured for our sakes. And we pray that you'd let us feel our roots loose here and we pray that you'd make us uh, your welcoming arms to strangers in our city. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let's go to love and serve the Lord with these words of grace ringing in our ears. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Okay.